Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So if I was a painter, I'd be, I probably would be one of those individuals that would be doing collages. So I'll probably be doing some collages in my little talk here. And one of the things that I've, I've, I feel very close to is, I don't know if there's any teachers in the room, um, but if you are a teacher of teaching anybody, there's a gentleman by the name of Paulo Fiera who uh, taught, he, he's from uh, Latin America, um, and he taught about, and this, this is probably going to sound like it should connect with all of us, that dialogue is the real way of teaching. It, it's not, it, you know, I remember what I got most out of, and don't hold the philosophy degree against me, but, <laughs> but what I got most out of philosophy classes were when I had a, a professor that was engaged in dialogue, and it wasn't just a talking head, um, that it has to... Um, that the teaching has to resonate a certain way, and it can only resonate if you're involved in it. And really, if if um, if I could lift uh, T.S. Eliot's line from the Four Quartets, it says, "In my beginning is my end." Okay, I, I can tell you what what I would hope that you get from me in this particular talk, and just to underline this particular point. And that the point is that. The line between life and practice, that should not be a line. Okay, and uh, when Wendy was describing some of my background, I, I was a very young man. I was in the Air Force Transcendental Meditation. I was doing it, but I did Transcendental Meditation. And look, let me just say right now, the Buddha says someplace that there's 84,000 ways to enlightenment. So. You know, whatever kind of we have an affinity towards, whether we're doing koans or breath work or um, counting, even counting, that's um, all that is is our way, whatever that way is for you all. Okay. Um, uh, so look, life and practice should there shouldn't be a division in life and practice and. My, my early years of meditating with, in Transcendental Meditation, all that practice was for me was a sanctuary that I went to occasionally. I, didn't, I did not uh, take my practice with me on the job, which was guarding weapon storage <laughs> sites in the middle of the desert. Okay. I, I, all, all meditation was for me at that point was a getaway, okay? And I, I, I would say my particular path is a path in which at, as I've gotten older and I've practiced more and more, I've realized that we, we should all just agree that there's, there's this one word that you and, I, you and I have just made up this morning. It's life and practice jammed in together. It's not even a, a hyphen in the middle of that. It's just one word. And that's what this is really all about. It's not just about those moments, those quiet moments that we may have at our house practicing. or those. It's, it's about practicing every moment at every instance. Part of, my, part of uh, the um, Soto Zen uh, experience. And look, all of these paths were very good for me, and I, I, God bless my, all my teachers, living or dead, okay, because I certainly have learned from sitting with Dogen and reading Dogen, who was a, in Soto Zen. Um, uh, but he would tell you, in one of his pieces, uh, he would tell you continuous practice, and that he made a point in his writings and his talks 
that that very writing in that talk was an example of his practice. And that's what it must, it, that's what it has to be for us, okay? Whatever, what, however we're practicing, we need to be able to have that resonate through, our, through all our moments in life. Um, so, look, you can probably, you'll probably tell after a while I read a lot. I, you know, I, I like to read. And, but, and I listen to music. Um, and why, so the question would be, why must we have a life practice? Okay. If, if, I think, I think I'm asking that in a, you know, as a, a matter of just moving the talk along. But in, in another sense, you know, one could ask, why do we have to have this life practice? And um, it reminds me of a, a, um, a line from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay. In the Red Hot Chili Peppers, has the, they have this, this, this song that's called Can't Stop. And it, it, they were playing it on the radio quite a lot. And, and Can't Stop is, Can't Stop the Addicted to the Shindig was like one of the first lines, okay? But there's really something at the end of that song which, which says, this life is more than just a read-through. Because this is, this is our lives. And if we can't have, and I'll, I'll use different words from different traditions, but if we can't have some grace and attention to this very moment, you know, each moment, all our life, each moment is, is there's, there's no hierarchy as to what moment's more important than the next. Now, I'm going to pull from something else now. In physics, there's the butterfly effect. And the butterfly effect is that there's a butterfly in China, and that butterfly is flapping its wings, and what, what, um, by flapping its wings, it changes the weather here in Long Beach. That there's this kind of reverberation. I'll tell you, I truly believe that when we've meditated all together this morning, there's a kind of flapping of our own wings that reverberates through this society, through this world, through this universe. If, you know, if you've read Thich Nhat Hanh, he'll talk about interbeing. And interbeing is his explanation of the connection with everything and everybody. So everything we do, those acts of loving kindness, those acts of compassion, they reverberate through all of, all of life and the world. And I'm going to upset you all now because we're even connected to Donald Trump. Okay. <laughs> And, and look, look, we have to, he, he gives us a great example of how we must practice. But, but because we cannot react in kind, in the kind of nonsense that may be coming out there. I, I am a union guy, I'm still an, a union guy. And, and Yay. yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> look, I'll, I'll probably, I'm, I'm with the Teamsters. I represent um, I rep represent uh, uh, supervisors at uh, LAUSD, but I'm probably next week I'll probably be on a picket line for the Teamsters at a bus yard. So um, I understand why someone who's representing other uh, workers needs to be front and present with with the with the, the whole union because our actions together have these reverberations. Um, I, I had, I brought my notebook, not because not I intend just to read to you, but I did, I did write some quotes, and in fact, I want to, I, I do want to read these. But um, this is, wisdom is something each of us finds for oneself. And this is my moment of discomfort a little bit about sitting in front of you. I, I, 
you know, where we practice at Ocean Eyes, we sit in a circle, okay? Because I, I understand that um, I can't meditate for you, you can't meditate for me. If I'm hungry and you eat, I may, I'm going to still be hungry. This is all up to us. Our practice is up to us. So um, there is a sense that this, a beautiful sense that community helps us to be with like-minded folks and to have these kind of conversations and these kind of dialogues so we, we can learn from each other. Kurt is from Ocean Eyes, and uh, I appreciate you being here today. Kurt, you know, I, I'm, you know, what they would call the, the, the teacher there, but Kurt has taught me, as well as the other members of Ocean Eyes. And I don't see any, again, division between teaching, teacher and student, and nor should there be. Because when I mentioned Paulo Fierro at the beginning, he was into the, the idea of dialogue. And you can't have dialogue if you've set up one um, authority over another. You, you all practice. You all um, uh, lead your lives. You all are developing your own wisdom. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in dialogue that we'll, we'll be able to um, share that with each other. Um, wisdom, so I'm, re I'm repeating myself, but wisdom is something each of us finds for oneself. To see it, we must go neither fast nor slow. What should we do? Go to where there is neither fast nor slow. Going fast or going slow are not the way. And why is that? Well, it's not the way because what I, fast and slow are dichotomy. Right? And that our work is a work of non-duality. And our work is, you know, um, neither high or low, neither hot or cold. But we're all impatient. We're in a hurry. As soon as we begin, we want to rush to the end. We don't want to be left behind. We want to succeed. That observation is an observation about what can get in the way of our practice at times. I've had my moments in practice. I was practicing, do you, do you all know Moo? Yes. Yeah. So, right, Moo's a, a koan, and, and um, it, in the nature of my talk, what, can you tell us what Moo is? Just the, briefly, and, right, okay, so, look, well, the, so the, the um, student goes up to um, uh, uh, Zhao Zhao, uh, Chinese master, and says, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Zhao Zhao simply says, Mu, which is in Chinese, it, well, actually Chinese is Wu, and Japanese is Mu. Here, in Long Beach is no, you know? So, you know, um, the, I was practicing with that and um, I had some really clear moments practicing with that. And I, I found that what will hamper practice is when you try to hang on something that's already bad, you know? I can't stake my uh, claim on life through move. I have to move on, and I have to practice on. Okay, I can't. You know, as as a little kid, as a little kid, I remember, um, and my family had a house in Lomita. They had a bench in their patio, and as a little kid, I would lay on the bench and I would look straight up at the sky. And I wondered whether I would be able to recall the moment of these clouds that were uh, going by. Well, I'm certainly telling you about those clouds. And in a way, I held on that moment in, uh, by memory. But that moment is gone. 
okay? And I have a memory for it. And what, what will hamper your practice and a life practice is when you have certain moments and you want to cling on to those moments. That, that's detrimental to your practice. You just need to let go and move on. I, I'm now practicing um, the Five Mountain Zen Order is um, uh, my teacher worked with uh, Sung San, um, the Korean teacher. And my practice is a Wado. And a Wado is a, a question. It's supposed to be the head part of a koan. And I, this is what I practice with. I, each moment, I, I try to hold on to what is this, in the sense of wonderment, in the sense of questioning. And that's, that's what I, I try to do. You notice I said try. I'm wearing robes. I'm still trying. Okay? And it, there's that old Zen saying about seven times down and eight times up. Okay? You, if, if, if you get some distraction, you just move on and you go back to the practice. So, um, I, think, I, I think what I wanted to convey to you this morning was simply this idea of life practice and keeping this close to your heart. Um, the, the, I, I brought this book out because I, I thought before we go into some dialogue and questions, I wanted to, um, this is a little teaching story by uh, Sung San from a book called Dropping Ashes on the Buddha. And it goes, um, this is actually the last uh, teaching in the book. And um, this won't spoil the book for you that I went to. <laughs> okay. It's called What is Love? What is Love? One evening, after a Dharma, Dharma talk at the Cambridge Zen Center, a student asked Sung San, what is love? Sung San said, I ask you, what is love? Sung San, the student was silent. Sung San said, this is love. The student was silent. Sung San said, you ask me? I ask you, this is love. So um, thank you for your practice. I, I've, I believe that we do reverberate throughout the universe when we do this practice. And, and we hold it close to ourselves and make it life practice. And um, so let's enter into that dialogue I was talking about. Any questions or comments? Um, my history has been similar to yours. I started out doing transcendental meditation and Vipassana and Zen. And that's my second favorite book. <laughs> my favorite book is uh, The Zen Teachings of Hung Po. And he talks about uh, the relinquishment of everything is the Dharma. But relinquishment of the Dharma leaves no Dharma. And basically, in, in our everyday life, we have to relinquish thoughts of the past, present, future, feelings, even the watcher. Um, and that brings us to a, a state of being with other people. That, that's well said. If, if, if I asked you how do you drink your tea, you would probably... Just it, like that. Just like that, right? And that's, <coughs> that's cutting away all the crap, right? all the fabrications, all the storytelling I do to myself, right? And that I, I can be before you all and just be before you. Without, like, I'm going to be on a picket line next week or something, okay? That I, that I let that go and I just, I'm here with you in this moment.
Well, you. I'll look at you there. Okay. I was, what does that practice look like in your application and your, because your work obviously has stressful situations. So what does that look like, maybe even internally or externally? With the what is this? Yes. Yeah. You, you know, at, you, you, you start repeating that at first, and then you, because you, actually the whole bit is what is this, don't know. And then at some point it's just what, and then you kind of carry around this feeling of wonderment and questioning. The, 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 in, in the work, when, when I am going through something stressful, and thank you for recognizing that I have a stressful job, okay? But when... I heard picket lines and I thought... <laughs> I, you know, what was actually... A picket line is just, you know, you're just there with a sign, and you, you know, so... Sometimes I, I, I would have to do these hearings, and you're defending, sometimes I'm defending someone who's wrong, okay, in the hearings, and they're like mini-court, and that, that's very stressful because you're, you're having to think on your feet very quickly, you know, and you have to know the material well enough to be able to do that. So, look, it's, it's just a momentary uh, business of going right back to it. If, if I feel like I've lost it too much, then then I will go back to actually what is this, you know. But um, when you practice it enough, it's, it's it's going on by itself too. And it's just that's just one means. <coughs> for for instance, at the Soto Zen Center, I did both koans there, and I I did um, you know just sitting shikantanza. You know, where you're just sitting and you're being aware. So, for us that have tried different methods, there's the different methods. And I think the, the mo most important thing about whatever you're doing is to do it consistently and attempt to bring it to every moment in your life. I uh, heard that you use what is this, and uh, I've been using what am I, and so I tried what is this this morning, and it, I liked the fact that it doesn't have the anthropomorphic implications of the word I, which is a source of a lot of trouble in our lives. Um, the only thing I didn't like is verbalizing it. Uh, what is this, what is this, is a little harder than what am I. Um, if you do it for a long period of time, I guess for about 30 minutes with each. And, but obviously, both are excellent mind control. And uh, I really conceptually like what is this better than I like what, what am I. Yeah, the, the Korean teacher, uh, um, Kusan uh, Sunin, who was the teacher of Stephen Batchelor, he, in, in his work, The Way of Zen, and it's I think it's the way of Korean Zen. He'll talk about um, at at moments what what is this that sweeps the leaves as he's doing a certain amount of activity. So we, that's his that was his way of bringing it back. But I I think m my teacher uh, had given me what is this, and his explanation was that Americans are too hung up on the eye and. And, you know, Ramana, uh, the Vedante, uh, Advante Vedante teacher in India, uh, Ramana, um, would give his students, um, who am I? But maybe those students weren't as hung up as we are in terms of the ego-laden culture that we're in, you know? So, yes? Do you ever use, what is this? Out loud with uh, other parties in a negotiation or facilitation, <laughs> <laughs> but in a not like in that, not like a what is this? But like, do you ever bring that to your to well, your negotiations? I did get some funny looks once, but I don't know if that was the reason. Okay, so I I don't I don't believe I ever did that, and you know you could do that without knowing that you're doing it, right? But um, the the fact is, once you start using, for me, the, the Wado, at a certain point, you don't have to verbalize it anymore, you know? And 
the sense of because I I there's a I I I've read that someone describing as a sense of wonderment, um, the sense of questioning can be a sense of wonderment, and that's all. That's just kind of if if you talk about mindfulness practice, that's just bringing you back right to the moment, you know, and with this this questioning aspect uh, uh, next to it as well. You had something going there for a second. Yeah. I was wondering about, uh, well, to change the subject a little bit, uh, experience. There's a, in 12-step work, it says uh, bringing your life's experience is your greatest asset. That's a line you hear thrown around a lot. I was wondering how that fits into your teachings. Well, I, I think that's important. I'm not, you know, if Kurt was up here before you, Kurt would be saying, and I said, this is the subject matter, or if you were up here, for us, and we were giving a the same kind of talk about uh, life practice. Then, um, or should I say, life practice? So, uh, you know, you would you would be you know you would say it in your own way with your own experience. Okay, I don't you know I don't know. You, I've I've had this weapon storage site in the middle of the desert. That uh, by the way. That's when I read a lot. And we weren't supposed to, but I, back in the days they had paperback books. I would sneak paperback books and read a book a day back then. So you can imagine how that was. They so. still have paperback books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Just a second. Um, in terms of life practice, I mean, this is something that I'm working with in my daily life. I have. Uh, I just wanted to get some information from you about how do you do life practice when you are dealing with like difficult people or people who are combative um, and dealing with them is not optional. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I do. I actually I do deal with a lot of difficult people. You know, and whether it's members who have. Um, outrageous expectations of what we can do for them or it's management that just simply wants their own way you know so um, I just you know I, I I once read someplace the Dalai Lama talking about like to get to a certain point of total loving kindness or compassion for and understanding or connection with everybody that if you looked at someone like they m might have been your, your mother in a past life, you know? And w once upon a time, um, uh, I, you know, a management wanted to hire me for a position. And uh, they, they said something to me, and we were at lunch, they said something to me about... Um, you know, we admire how you can uh, represent these crazy people. <laughs> and my response was, if they're crazy, you made them crazy. Okay. And so, uh, needless to say, I didn't get that job. <laughs> okay. But with, you, with your question and the point, the point is that I, you know, it, when I when I have it going on and I have it together, I'll I'll recall that there's some sort of circumstance or context or background that brought them to this outrageous point. Okay, and to to look at them like my sister or brother at that point, you know, and just and and you know I I I recall that this Tibetan monk was released from being tortured. Um, by the Chinese. The Chinese had him, this was communist Chinese, had him in a cell, tortured him for whatever reason that they were torturing a monk for, okay? And he gets out, he gets released, and the reporters ask him, what do you think about your captors? And he started, he started crying. And he cried because he said, I can't believe what they did to their karma. To, to have that kind of heart, you know, is, is something 
um, that would be really something. You know, I would I would love that I would have that same reaction after perhaps having your fingernails pulled out, right? You know, that you could say, these poor people that have damaged themselves so severely by acting the way they act. Thanks. Um, you were talking about what is this, and I apologize. I feel like I must have missed when you originally were talking about what you use that for or how you use that. It's my, it's, it's my practice. My practice, and to begin with, when you, when you begin using a uh, wado, you begin just by repeating it. It's not to be used like a mantra. It's supposed to be something that you're um, taking with you moment by moment. Um, something I just, uh, an aside, I once read that mant mantra means mind protection. Okay, that you, you saying, and for someone who did transcendental meditation and city yoga, you're doing, you're saying this mantra over and over again to keep out all these fabrications and concepts and thoughts in your head. With, when I started, what is this? It, it was kind of, uh, I would breathe in, what is, what is this? And I would breathe out, don't know. And at a certain point, you let go of the verbal, verbalization. And at some point, it's, you may just be verbalizing what, you know? Because the sense of what is the sense of wonderment. You know, this is not just a um, Dao Wei who's important to uh, the lineage I belong to, okay, uh, was a, who came up and wrote extensively about um, using the uh, Wado. He has this beautiful line that I like very much. He says that, oh, practice with this and you'll find a brightness in your heart. And I, he was talking about lifting up all that stuff we carry around with us through our, our you know, daily lives, you know. W whether it's me being concerned about giving a talk to strangers for a moment, okay, until I realize, of course you're not strangers. You're all practitioners, and we're all here um, trying to make those positive reverberations through the universe. Yes. Um, so hearing you talk about what is, it kind of, um, from what I understand or what I'm getting from it, it's like you have a feeling of wonderment of everything. Like when you encounter a difficult person and they're, and you say to yourself, what is, and you say, don't know, but you're kind of curious of why is this person, why, what brought this person to be this difficult? Like how did they get there? Or anything, you know, like anything that happens in your life or in your day. So, so sometimes you'll get a chance to, to, to uh, get to know the person more at, at a certain point, and then you'll realize what kind of scars they may have, you know? Sometimes you don't. But it, it's, you know, our practice is really not about achieving anything, right? It's about letting go. And so, you know, we can't hold on to... <coughs> I would damage myself severely, and I hope, I hope I'm not insulting anyone's political view, but I would damage myself severely if I reacted to Trump the way he, he presents himself. I cannot deal with it like that. And my poor wife, who I, I tell her not to scream obscenities at the TV, <laughs> but... But I have to let her go at sometimes with some, some of the things that are going on. This is, look, we're here, a Bodhisattva is an individual that um, um, makes a vow not to um, gain, I, words are so feeble, but I'll, so I'll say gain, but with, it has a line through it, okay? Um, that uh, will not gain enlightenment until everyone else comes with him. Okay. 
See, that's true solidarity, right? <laughs> yes? What I find profound about the question, what is this, is um, it's so contrary to what we're sort of um, wired to do with this human meaning-making machine. And I feel like we're always needing something and labeling it and judging it and saying, oh, that's that, and that's that. And so I love the idea of the question of the curiosity, and it also supports that whole thing about Buddhism, about pausing, yeah. you know, before you speak. And so I, I like those two. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's while while I mentioned a uh, Chinese uh, Zen master Dawei, it's not just it's not just. Uh, I, I found uh, in Pali um, that um, that points to this type of thing, okay? Where again, monks, when walking, one knows I am walking. I changed that from he. You find that? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> again, monks, when walking, one knows I am walking. When standing, one knows I am standing. When sitting, one knows I am sitting. When lying down, one knows I am lying down. Um, or one knows however his body is disposed. And then further, the, the decisive difference between simple walking and walking meditation is the meditator keeps in mind the question, who goes, where is this going? So I, I, this, is, this is an old practice. And you, know, you, can, you can find it in various places. And like I, I mentioned, um, uh, Ramana of... Uh, who was the beginning of the previous century, uh, used who am I that he would give to his students. Although, it's funny, he never used his, um, what brought him enlightenment was that he pictured himself as a corpse. And, uh, the, but he would always give his students who am I. So, I, the other, as a, I'm, so again, don't fault me for the philosophy stuff, okay, but, Heidegger, who I studied as a young man, writes about um, um, questioning and how qu the, the act of questioning opens the clearing. You know, and I, I think that's part of this too, that we keep ourselves open, right? I read an interesting story about uh, people who meditate on corpses and they develop a secondary image in their mind. So after they attain that secondary image, they, they go back home and they, they look in the corner, there's a corpse, and there's a corpse over there. So it's not without side effects. And so a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, Zen masters don't start their students out with, with that as a uh, technique just because of the side effects. That is good to know. <laughs> There's a corpse in my car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more quick thing. So, so with this thing about being open and curious and non-judgmental and all that, especially in your line of work, I mean, and obviously there's times where we have to draw lines, and and um, and when we draw those lines, it's discerning and it's and it is making a call of sometimes the polarity of right or wrong, or so. And this is where I, I spiral sometimes. Yes. You know. We all do. Yeah. Right. And you know, when I I was ordained in uh, the uh, Soto Zen temple that I practice, and I've been ordained over here, but I remember the the um, ceremony that I talked to my teacher, um, and she wanted to know if I was fine with the, the ceremony, if I had any comments. And I may, I, 
my comment was that we should change in this the delusion and enlightenment are are the are a dualism okay so maybe we should talk about awakening awakening to the fact that sometimes i'm going to uh, slip and fall and need to pick myself up and we we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves either i mean at some point, I'll be leaving here, and I'll have to stop at a stoplight. And I'll make a decision to do that in the judgment that the light's red, right? So there's a purpose for all that. Where, where we go wrong is this kind of uh, uh, hyper um, mentality or rationality or where we bring these fabrications and constructs to our lives. Well, I can't sit here before you because I need to worry about the meeting tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, did I get someone upset yesterday? You know, I should be here right here with you all now. Okay. And deal with the, when I have to deal with the rest, I deal with the rest. What are your thoughts about mantras? I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think the only, 84, the Buddha says there's 84,000 ways to enlightenment. That's got to, that's probably one of them, you know, you know, and, and we all find what we're, what, what we find affinity in at a certain point. You and I have done, did a little wandering and we found our place, you know, so. B.T. Suzuki wrote in one of his books that he thinks that more Amidas Buddhists become enlightened than any other sect because of their single-minded devotion to Namo Amida Buddha. Namo Amida Buddha. They chant that 24-7 and then boom. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, I, I, this Pure Land uh, teacher had once told me that I should practice Pure Land for a while in, in order to get my, um, my muscle ready for Wado. So, what is that mantra, Namo? Uh, they believe that uh, one of the patriarchs is almost like Buddha, and so they chant his name over and over again. Oh, somebody's name. It's right. a Buddha's name. It's yeah. A Buddha's name. Oh, yeah. homage to that Buddha. Namo means homage. Yeah. I like uh, that book, uh, Zen Master's. Uh, I can never pronounce his name. Sun Song. Sun Song. Yeah. He says that uh, you can. Repeat Coca-Cola over again, over and over again, and become enlightened if, uh, <laughs> if you use it regularly. <laughs> Have, has anyone seen this movie by this? This I'm getting really. Uh, Andre Tarkovsky did this movie called The Sacrifice. Anyone see that? There's a anyway. There's a scene in that movie, and it, he uh, Tarkovsky did these really spiritual movies, and they're really slow. <laughs> Okay, I mean, this seems like someone walking through a pool of water that takes quite some time. Okay, so you have to look at that kind of movie a little differently than The Hitman's Bodyguard or something, right? But in that movie, one of his characters say, you know, I truly believe that if I poured a glass of water in the toilet every day, that I would change the world. <laughs> Okay. And that may, that, the, the idea that, that you're doing something with, what, what is a ritual but something that you're doing intentional, right. right? And that you mean to have certain reverberations from, right? So. That's just a butterfly effect argument, right? That's is just the butterfly effect again. So we should all be practicing 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Yes. Just wanted you to say. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I'll, I'll be there to pick you up when you fail, and you all be there for me when I fail, okay? All right, because we, we need to always come back and bring it back. All right? Yes. So you have a full-time job, yes. correct? Yes. What did, if you don't mind sharing, what does your formal practice look like day in, day out? 
I do uh, an hour in the morning of, of uh, sitting, and then I do 20 minutes when I come home. Um, that's the, the formal practice. And then, you know, um, I get up really early in the morning. So I actually work out a little bit and read, and I, I you know, go into my day prepared, kind of. I heard an NPR program this week, a fellow wrote a second book about meditation. He comes to it from a very uh, uh, clinical thing. One minute a day. That's his recommendation. One minute a day. If it works for him, okay. I, I know what, you know, if, you know I've done um, uh, retreats that will be silent for a week, right? And... The one thing that I notice is that there's certain resistances um, uh, truly dissipate and go away if, if you just work with it and let it float away. Um, I'm not sure about the one minute if that's, he's coming from it from a, you know, his minute may be different than mine. So, and I, I never really want to criticize anyone because it, it really is whatever works you know there have been people that have gained enlightenment without any meditation uh, the Buddha's first uh, not first but uh, the one who took over the order after he died Maha Kasyapa yes uh, he, the Buddha held up a flower he became enlightened Yes. the venerable Ko became enlightened uh, there's few people but it's almost like jumping from the bottom of the mountain to the top. Yeah. Usually, uh, it takes a little bit of mind control. Yeah. Well, you've heard, you know, that there are people that are able to do that, you know. And that's why I think, that's why I think the Buddha says there's 84,000 ways. Okay. It, he says this, out, actually, I think it's 84,001. But I, the, the idea here is there's so many ways. And the one thing we shouldn't be doing is judging that that my way is better than your way. You know, it shouldn't be that. It's the all, the paths lead to the same place. How we get there may be a little different. Yes. The thing that just occurs to me too is just in popular culture, people don't all meditate for the same reason. I mean, that person might be talking about one minute a day and they're not thinking about alignment at all. They might be thinking about stress reduction or, mm -hmm. you know, performance or whatever people are interested in. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So. Mm -hmm. Before I go over here, Kurt and I had a, a cup of coffee before coming in here and um, he was asking me, um, uh, how did I get started with uh, Zen? And I told him I was working for a union and I wanted to be able to focus better. I wanted to be able, uh, be able to concentrate a lot better, right? It wasn't, it, I didn't have those kind of high ideals that I was, right? This, it was a, really a pragmatic thing. So I, I realized that we, everyone goes into it for different reasons. Um, I think I have found my home and and my practice, and you know, um, I think the most important thing I probably said all day is the the idea that this is you're here and this is uh, this should be a life practice because this is our lives and and um, each moment is important, each moment is sacred. Um. I was just going to say that I like the don't know because I'm uh, aware of my Western mind grasping at knowing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And wanting, wanting to rest at knowing something. And, and it's, just a, it's just a kind of grasping. But I haven't used the question, so that's an interesting... It's like I just don't know. <laughs> there you go. Whatever. You're there. It's all a mystery. <laughs> Not that I'm good at that either, but it's a practice I need. Mm -hmm.
it's nice to hear a different uh, voice. Uh, I think a lot of people get tripped off on Theravada, Zen, you know, Chirlan, uh, Nichiren, and it's it's all pointing at the same thing. It's mm -hmm. a lot of times it's a different language because you know um, Theravada we focus on sensation, <laughs> and by bare attention on sensation we cut off thinking and uh, you know all that swirl in our head and become aware of what's going on right now. And Zen cuts off thought to the same purpose. And so when you know, you talk in either language, sometimes it gets a little uh, difficult for people to follow, but it's, it's all the same. It is. It is. And, you know, um, my, my, um, the beautiful thing about Long Beach, when I was a little kid, my uh, Greek grandparents lived on Linden Avenue. My grandfather used to take me to the Pike. Mm -hmm. And so I remember all this. But, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church... They have, they have um, what they call the Jesus Prayer. And the Jesus Prayer is, um, Lord Jesus Christ, breathe in, have mercy on me, breathe out. And the, 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 yeah, the monks will... the meditation. Yeah, the monks will sit and, and simply do that over and over again. So it's everywhere. You know, our, this practice that we share is everywhere. And there's... You're going to find little different trimmings from here or there, but it's it's all pointing to the same thing, and it's about how connected we are. D.T. Suzuki wrote a great book on uh, comparing the writings of Christian mystics to Zen Buddhists, and they're describing the exact same experience of enlightenment with different words. Yes. So they call it union with the Godhead, where we call it enlightenment, or Satori, or uh, Nirvana, or Whatever. Right. That's exactly right. So we have to stop now. Okay. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming. Thank you all. And thanks for spending your morning with us. Okay. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.